ora and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival Audio Archive, bringing you live recordings and conversations from New Zealand's annual celebration of spontaneous theatre. This season, we bring you our conversation series. In each episode, a trio of improvisers come together to talk about what lights them up, what challenges them, and what keeps them excited about the future of improv. In this episode, we hear from Maria Colombo from Otipoti, Dunedin, Ben Zolno from Tifanganui Atara, Wellington, and Daniel Allen from Atotahi, Christchurch. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at Bats Theatre in October 2021. And now presenting the NZIF 2021 Conversation Series. Ben Zolno, Maria Colombo, and Daniel Allen our three wonderful panellists today can talk to us about a, top, a variety of topics of interest uh, that may or may not include uh, the infinity wars of improv, gender and improv, maybe, but not necessarily, and anything else that organically emerges through the power and magic of conversation. The way we're going to run it today, so we obviously have a live audience. Let's make some noise from the live audience. It's full of ghosts. Uh, <laughs> And as well as that, there's another spatial time relationship happening where other people will be listening to this in the future, which will be their present, and later their past, and they will... (laughs) They will be learning about these things. So we will be speaking for about half an hour. I won't be speaking for much longer, don't worry. They will, we will be chatting for about half an hour or so, then we will open up to the audience, the live audience of ghosts for questions, and then we will go from there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand it over, I'm going to get off the stage and ask each of you to introduce yourselves briefly about your background in improv, and then you can sort of self-facilitate and ask each other questions. So with that extremely smooth intro done, I'll hand it over. Kia ora Koto. it's wonderful being in front of these live ghosts today. Um, uh, my name is Dan Allen. Uh, I'm Maria Colombo. I'm Ben Zolno. So, Maria and Ben, what's going on for you in terms of how does your company approach playing gender on stage? Yeah, I can, uh, I can start us off there. Um, so, I'm Maria, um, I'm the Artistic Director of Impressaurus down in Dunedin um, right now. I, uh, I will be honest, I have some pretty specific Uh, views or opinions, I suppose, about playing gender. But the general thing I put forward is that I would tend to ask my improvisers to play genders that they embody in their everyday lives. Um, And the reason for that is because then they can actually draw on personal experience to play that gender as opposed to playing a trope of that gender. Um, One of the tendencies I think we have is to, if somebody comes on with like a lower voice and maybe like a staunch physicality, is to to give that person a gendered name, Um, so to call them Brian. And I think sometimes if if it was a a Brian the (laughs) malest of names, I've decided. (laughs) Um, And if the person playing that uh, is a woman, um, what we do is we actually detract from that person's ability to play maybe a really interesting woman um, or a woman who falls on whatever spectrum of representation she wants to, um, and suddenly it becomes a trope man. Um, 
this has become increasingly more complicated or interesting, I would say, um, as members of our troop uh, identify as either um, non-binary, um, yeah, non-binary members. But again, I would say anything that they have experienced with and and um, ever, whatever gender is true for them, I'd feel comfortable with them playing on stage because that's their true experience. Thank you. Um, so I, for background, um, I run a company called uh, Improv Connection that is an improv training center in Wellington uh, that is now becoming a more of a performance uh, company than, than, uh, than a school itself that's transitioning right now. And so this, this doesn't come up too often, which is really interesting because I, I, I keep waiting for it to come up more often because the g gender in, in our world and politics is a, is a ripe discussion. Uh, improv Connection focuses on grounded, un unscripted theater style of improv. So we're not really going for the funny necessarily. It's, we end up usually with a lot of dramedy type scenes. Um, that's our current focus. And the work that we do with people just for the first six months is just asking them to play different versions of themselves. And for some people that's playing a woman, sometimes it's playing a man, a girl, a boy. Uh, we have uh, several non-binary non people around. So they end up playing different people and so, yeah, we don't have too much of, a, of instruction other than, but when people start to play characters, this, this question comes up after about six months or so. And there's a book, I think, called uh, Gender and Improv, and the names, is it Stephen? I want to say Stephen Davidson, I feel, is that right? Yes. Okay, great. And that's written by uh, somebody that I believe once um, identified as a woman and is now identifies as a man. And... Uh, I, so I guess I was looking for it for like the source and the answer to some of these questions, you know, because I feel like the answer to this has changed over time and I just want the right answer. Um, and unfortunately the book was way more uh, liberal and progressive than that and was just basically saying what I got fr from it after reading it a couple times was largely if you're, if you play the person first and if gender matters to that person, play that gender. But for, for us with, uh, and, and, and treat it with, res with respect like you would any of your other characters. Some people want to do improv because they want to express themselves. Some people want to do improv because they want to not express themselves. They want to be anybody but themselves. Um, but in the kind of work that we do to answer your specific question, what do we do in, uh, in the companies that we work with, the stuff that we do is always respectful of the characters themselves. We don't end up playing tropes of any kind because people aren't trying to play that kind of person ever in the work that we do. So we've been able to um, not have that be such an issue directly. Um, tangentially, I'm in a, a troupe where we're two guys that identify as men and we play uh, all different sorts of genders just depending on what we feel the scene needs. Um, and I always have a little bit of the, the little pilot brain, as Ian Harcourt might say, you know, watching down upon myself, making sure, like, am, am I playing into tropes too much, or am I, you know, that kind of thing. But we never make, our choice is to never make the gender the thing about the person. I just find that wholly uninteresting t in general to me, like, hey, I'm this gender, my entire character is going to be about this gender. Uh, I felt a lot of different ways about being called a boy and a man over my life, and none of them really describe like me and who I am. You know, it's just one aspect of how I identify. I suppose my background is uh, mostly with court jesters in Christchurch, um, and when I first got taken into the company, we. But this is the early two thousands we're talking about, so times changed. But um, when we first entered the company, 
we had a sort of a blanket rule of um, play the gender that you present to society. So um, I think there was good intention behind that, making that rule, which was that um, we didn't want a confusion on stage and B, we didn't want broad stereotypes of women to get laughs from the guys. So we didn't want being a female to be the source of comedy. So I had, I suppose, got ingrained in me, and I know a lot of my contemporaries are the same, that we, we don't play women, you know, as guys, we don't play women. I suppose I took that into my company in Nelson too, and that same sort of a, approach. And now I'm sort of thinking that as gender perceptions change in society, that maybe I'm a bit out of date with my approach. Um, because having come back into the court justice after 10 years away from it, I now see people playing all sorts of genders. And I'm not sure if that's a policy of the group or whether or not it's just evolved that way and they haven't really talked about it. Um, maybe some people in the audience would know more about it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm wondering where my company's at with it. I like to talk to my company about it but, um, mm. and, and find out what they think. Uh, and we also, yeah, have non-binary people in the group now. So I'd like to hear, hear about what they think too about us playing genders and what they want to play. Well, are they just presenting what they identify with on stage or can we assume that they're being different genders as well? Yeah, it's interesting to say that. I'm teaching a 100 level theatre class at uni um, and I did end up talking to this class, which is interesting. I haven't re-broached this topic with my troupe because the troupe has not changed like the same the members have been the same for a very long time so we haven't re-broached it but I broached it with um the students because these 100 level students they've never improvised before they're not even necessarily performers they were um really playing the whole gambit of gender in a really interesting way and I realized that an 18 year old has a better understanding of gender than I do and take such a different lens to it. And I was about to, I, I distinctly remember in the class going, I'd like you to play. And then I just had to pause. And we just sat and chatted about gender. And that was where they came up with us saying, well, that's not how we view gender at all. And so our ability to play across these, um, these characters, um, characters for them, you know, is really, really important. Um, and that we do experience like that whole, um, that whole spectrum of gender in our life, many of us. And so we want to be able to play within that. And we did, we agreed on doing that. And I think it was really good. What I don't feel equipped to do right now is how to how to have the healthy conversation about that. Like I realise that that's a, a weakness of me having had this viewpoint and then also being cisgender um, and, and trying to still figure out how to discuss that productively because um, they really led that conversation and I was grateful for that. It was a big learning for me. So, yeah, like all the 18-year-olds were like, yeah, no, you're old, which was fair, fair enough. So uh, Maria, who I'm pretty sure is 10 years younger than me, uh, <laughs> just when she said she was old, immediately passed me the microphone, uh, even though I don't actually have anything further to say. Um, uh, but... Yeah, I guess, I guess just some kind of framing for that kind of conversation might just be, what are you trying to get out of improv? What do you think of gender? And the only thing that scares me is a very specific statement that is considered to be true, and that's the way it is. If there's a decision by the end of that, like, this is true about gender, this is what our audiences want, 
this is the right thing to do, and that's just the way it is, and it shan't ever change, mm. then I would be distrustful of that. But anything other than that seems like a good place to start for you as a person, for your improvisers, for your community, and yeah, everything from like what do you think is funny to what do you think is offensive. Uh, is there any if uh, is there anything that we can do that might offend some but might be okay? I mean, for instance, and I know a lot of guys would be offended by the performance of some women that are playing men is like, hey, dude, what's up, you know, and just like grabbing the crotches on stage and things like that. Other people might feel hilarious because they might feel like that's punching up. Maybe guys in general, sometimes people feel like to, to aim at a guy is punching up, you know. Um, and of course, the opposite would be offensive to a lot of people. So it depends on the community and depends on what you're really going for. And yeah, I'm just wary of any certain answer. Could we agree that there's, that, I mean, apart from certain answers, could we agree that um, when we walk onto an improv stage, because we don't have the costume and the scripted elements that a scripted play might have to present the, gen the gender, is it different? Because, because we're doing improv and we're walking on in our civvies and starting a scene, is it, is it better to assume the person is the gender that they present to society? Oh, I would say no. Uh, I think that the only way you, you can't ever assume, so I would say that would have had to be a pretty well-versed conversation between you and all of your troop members, which does, like, is interesting, and I think it comes back to this festival as well where we play with people who aren't in our troop. Like, like I can tell you endless details about the people in my own troupe, um, what gender they identify with, um, whether they've even um, had questions about that. Like I can also give you almost a barometer of parts of their lives and how they felt about their gender. We're a very close group. And so when you come somewhere like NZIF and you improvise with new people, I think actually gender is one of those things that we often over-assume. Um, and that when we're improvising with new people, it's one of those things that we should definitely be checking in with each other on. Um, and I wonder if that's the other thing is whether there's personal preference in like who we play on stage as well. Because um, for me, as a cisgender woman, I actually, I don't, I don't, I, I can honestly, I don't want to play a man. And for me personally, that is because I, I truly, I've never not felt cisgender. And so I, I, I worry that I'm not able to tell that story. And I think as, as an improviser, we are a surrogate for the audience as well as like a surrogate for our troupe. And like we kind of sit there as like, it's not a scripted play, right? Like we do have to be acknowledging that there are people there who are living and breathing and receiving what we're doing. Um, so it's kind of like we have one ear on our troupe and like one ear on the well-being of the audience. Um, so for me, I think that my safest place is playing uh, a woman because I identify as a woman. But I wonder if it's also asking people where their safest playing point is. Yeah, because I also believe that as improvisers, we're big learners. And so if you were someone who said, oh, you know, I don't, um, I don't always identify as cisgender or, or even just I've got a real um, interest in, in gender and you wanted to explore that and understand that, I would hope to believe that people we worked with would learn about that before doing it. I think that's the key, is, is trying to learn as much as you can. I mean, there's, there's so many dynamics to talk about this. You know, for instance, if I were in a troupe with somebody that was every color, every age, every gender in the book, I'm much more likely to come out and play my own there and, and leave space for others that have that, that voice. If I'm in a two-person improv 
troupe with two straight guys, are we only going to play guys that are around our age that are from the countries we're at? And if we do, is that exclusionary? You know, those are the kinds of things that, that I would think. Because if, if we, we, you know, we've got criticism one time, like, holy, you guys did a whole show, you were only guys that whole time. Mm-hmm. And, and then other people in the audience couldn't connect with that, you know? It was a mistake because we only had three scenes and it was maybe a coincidence, but maybe not. You know, maybe we're suppressing something that we didn't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think about what you're saying and I also I think about the last thing you said about researching and identifying, yeah? Because just when I was doing, started improv about 25 years ago, I was just fascinated about studying everybody else except for myself to the point where it was a problem, you know? So I wanted to know everything I could about plumbing. I wanted to know everything about England and I wanted to know things about people of different races and genders and, and all these kinds of things so that I could, um, so that I could be, well, at the time, I just so, so that I could be them on the stage. It wasn't so that I could be the grand representation for it, especially since, 95% of people that I was performing with were white guys, you know, um, Chicago. So, uh, it's just so many things. Yeah, Chicago. There's only white men in Chicago, didn't you know? Um, so, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. There, there's so many people that want to play somebody other than, mm. than themselves. Um, I'm going to say something that's just vague and not helpful maybe as a way to, to put my end on this conversation is that I feel like every character that I do up on stage, no matter what's on, on the surface, is a version of me in some way. And also a way for me to escape myself. Dan, kind of before this, was asking whether improv is finite. Um, I'm going to ask him to kind of define that. And I guess what I would add to that is, is improv finite? And how do we incorporate learning, continual learning, into our improvisation if it isn't? This morning, Tristram and I were having a conversation about our experience, and I asked him how long he was improvising for, and he said six years. And I thought, wow, that's that's quite a long time. Then he asked me how long I'd been <laughs> improvising for, and I had to count up, and I said 30 years, because I, I started when I was 11, and uh, now I'm 41. And I, I suppose I started thinking about that and thought, am I actually better at theatre sports now than when I was when I was 11 or 12? I mean, in some regards, yes. But also I wonder whether or not sometimes I think of improv as a thing that once you've done it and you get it, then it's, it's there and it's something you can pick up and do and adapt and modify into different um, forms of improv, but it's kind of a thing which is um, a little bit finite in its, in its application. You know, I love improv, don't get me wrong. This is, this is going down a strange track, but because I really love improv. It's my first love, in, in a sense, in terms of performance, because I got into it as a performance art before any other acting or dancing or music kicked in. I really love improv, and I keep coming back to it. I mean, here I am, 41 years old, and inside of because I think I might learn something. But I also go away from it sometimes and do other things. And I think going away from improv and, say, being in, like, a musical or being in a Shakespeare has actually made me a better improviser because kind of picking up what you said before, being about gathering experiences to make yourself able to play those things, I think actually my performance uh, experience in other realms has probably made me a better improviser when I come back to improv. So sometimes I actually think, if I want to be a better improviser, I need to be better at this other thing. And then I'll bring that into my improv and I'll have all these different strings to my bow. 
So sometimes I think, does doing, I wonder, does doing more improv make you a better improviser? I think that there's there's peaks and troughs over your learning with anything, um, and improv is no stranger to that. Like I think you have this this um, kind of uncomfortable stage. Of, we might all remember it when we first started learning those core skills, and it was like, what? <laughs> Why? Why do I have to do things like this? Or like you're really trying to get it in your head, right? Accept, accept, accept. I think of improv now as a bit of a like a foreign language that we speak. So we get, we get it, right? Like we understand how to conjugate the verbs. We understand how to form the sentences. And then what is interesting about improv is watching that applied over a series of different uh, like scenarios. You really see this again when, when you teach young, like anyone young, and it's just like their frame of reference for what we can improvise about is really small. Um, and even though they are doing the skills prescriptively, um, it's just they don't have that wide berth of like emotional experience, even practical experience, to um, to keep demonstrating like really um, really like amazing scene work. Sometimes you s tend to see the same scenes over and over again. So by that way, yeah, I think that once you get those core skills, you need to keep like um, kind of like expanding and then coming back in and checking in on how that has adapted your your improbability. Um, and, yeah, kind of similarly, when we come to places like NZAF, I remember my first one when I was a baby improviser, I walked away just like I couldn't hold all the nuggets of information I'd learned, and I was so petrified of losing any of it. And now I take a far more broad stroke to the festival in general and saying, like, what, are the, what were the feelings or the um, general vibe that I want to take back to my improv? Um, so yeah, I wonder if it moves from like specific to general, but that that general's really important. I, I just think it's wholly unfair that I have to go third for all of these because <laughs> because you, you bring up such great points and then you bring up about 27 great points and I'm trying to like, I need to respond to 28. Uh, so I'm just gonna pick two maybe because you y'all are so smart and uh, I think maybe you just gave me a little epiphany. So let me just push that out real quick. Um, I think for me, what I want to see on stage and what I want to perform on stage, the only thing that I, that my gut demands is authentic is a genuine emotion. Yeah. Everything else I'm okay is seeing as a mask, personally, as a gender or as an accent or wherever it is, that you, as an age, whatever it is. But if you're going up there and pretending to, to be sad and I can tell you're not really sad, why does it bother me? I can tell that's not really a coffee cup in your hand. Why does it really bother me that, you, that you're not, that there's a part of you that's not genuinely sad or genuinely tapped into that? So it almost makes me cry like just saying this, because so maybe it's truish. Things that make feel truish to me make me cry. So um, the, what you said there about doing improv for 30 years, I thought oh, I started around the same age as you did, because I'm two years older than you, and I started when I was 13. And... Uh, but I don't, I don't consider myself having done improv for 30 years. I always say that I've done it for like 19 years because I count all the, the years that I took off that I said, uh, including when I was at, in the Chicago scene and doing improv seven days a week, to answer your question on the limits before, I felt like at the time there was a limit to improv. Like there's only so much you can do, so much truth telling, so much entertainment that you can do. I wasn't there yet at that point, but I felt like I could see it. And I realize now in retrospect that what I saw was a wall 
And there was, if I just looked to my left or my right, there was actually so many different pathways to the light of keeping improv more interesting, more fascinating, everything from hip hop to making people cry on stage to silent to, you know, what is it that you want to say with this stuff? Um, and so I felt like I needed to go live life a little bit more because I was in my early 20s and all I was doing was imitations of what I thought life was actually about without actually having learned about life. So I quit what I, for what I thought was going to be a short time and ended up being off and on about 10 years um, till I came back to it. And I do feel like I'm a better improviser now because I'm going back to what I probably knew when I was 13, which is just freak out and you'll be interesting, and new things will come from you freaking out with me on stage, you freaking out with me on stage. We're gonna have this freak out. The audience is gonna witness the freak out. They're gonna wish they could have freaked out as much as you did, unless they're a bunch of improvisers, and then they think they should be up here with us, and they probably should. Um, but that kind of experience that we're giving the audience and ourselves, I think, is what I wanna see improv for. And I don't think there's a limit to that. Bye, Ryan. I'm about to say something controversial, Ryan. Oh, well. Um, so improv is mediocrity, the art form, isn't it? Like, when I, when I direct an improv show, I'm, I, I think to myself, I'm going to make this so excellent. This is going to be the most excellent improv show we've ever done because we're going to be so well schooled on the thing, the concept that we're going to make it. And then we do it, and it gets a few laughs, and it's a bit crap. And that seems to be what improv always is, if you really boil it down. <laughs> you know, like... Yes, <laughs> So I guess it's interesting, because I guess I'm asking you folks, what do you think is excellence in improv? I'm so happy to have a, a point of wholehearted disagreement with you, um, because I think so much time this can just be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, I have the opposite experience of that. Um, I feel like the aim so much is mediocrity, um, and then you end up getting less than that sometimes. But for me, I feel like at least the kind of improv that I like to watch, which is two people exploring, let's see how things go, and we might learn something about ourselves and our world. If that's the approach taken and you really dive into it, I've never seen a show or a scene fail like that. And the laughs always come even if you're not trying. That said, short form scares the hell out of me. Um, and I think there's a lot of what, what my... Doom Bloom partner calls, uh, well, they were talking about it yesterday in uh, uh, playing the failure. What do you guys call it? Struggle. Showing the struggle. Yeah, showing the struggle. And I feel like improv that shows the struggle more than like 2% of the time is, is kind of like saying, hey, look, we're, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not really trying to do this thing that we all promised you we're trying to do. It, it hurts my soul to watch. And, I, and for a long time in New Zealand and in the parts of, lots of parts of the United States, the, hey, we're doing this but not really was like 80 to 90% of the show where I just couldn't watch it anymore. Improv can be really amazing and great for somebody that is doing it their first day or their 30th year and shrugging and saying, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, we tried, it's no big deal, um, is not a, enough for me and I could see how it could feel not enough for the, the player. I don't know if I'm reading too much into what you're saying there, reading the wrong, maybe I'm going off a wrong tangent, but um, yeah. And also, I think your radar might be messed up, personally, Dan, because you step on stage and I, I just immediately hate you 
because I'm jealous and I just think like, look at that magic, look at that power that you have. It's so fucking, it's really powerful, you know? So for you to see that as mediocrity is good actually for your growth. <laughs> so <laughs> to, see, to, to, to see where you go, but maybe just uh, wholly inaccurate for the rest of the world's perspective. I actually do think Dan Allen is incredibly mediocre. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I think that... Well, oh, I love mediocrity. I love it. I think that, like, I wonder if, like, we actually need to be like, yeah, it's mediocre, and, like, and, like revel in the enjoyment of that. Because I have never met an improviser who is not, like, even if they're like, I'm... I'm not type A. Like, we are all type A. Like, rigid. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I know so many people who got into improv to be like, I just... Um I, or you see this journey of people who enter improv, want to learn the rules. This was so me. Want to execute the rules. And then have achieved said rules. And how it's not joyous. And I feel like I've seen so many people into that with a similar attitude. And then learn to drop that. And, um, and we deem that mediocre because we haven't hit the prescriptive ticks of a scene. And, like, if joy was the metric, would it feel mediocre? If play was the metric, would it feel mediocre? If making eye contact with people was the metric, would it feel mediocre? Because I don't go through my day and make eye contact with people as much as I do with improvisers. And so I just wonder if sometimes we keep coming back to the core skills and very like Johnston skills, right? Like we don't even come back to, we're not even readapting like what we think those core skills should be. We're allowed to update, right? And say like, hey, I don't see it. Like when I think of yes and, I think of just like listen and care, right? Like if all you had to do was listen, truly listen, and then actually care. That's the same as yes and. So yeah, I, I revel in the mediocrity because I think it's a bunch of very um, higher like truly high achieving, who want to be high achieving people who do this art form and watching them cut loose and be okay to just like let shit happen is pretty cool. At, at risk of doing this way too late in the conversation, can we just quick define mediocrity? Because yeah. I might have lost it. It took me like a year to find out what the word average meant in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so for the international listeners out there, uh, there's this thing called tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, which is uh, anybody that appears to excel, you chop off their head, uh, usually metaphorically. And the uh, definition of average is to be below average. So I don't know what mediocrity means, um, but if it meant something like, like uh, normalness, I do find tons of joy in normalness. I find normalness quite extraordinary to watch if you're watching it there, uh, to get people up on stage to, again, be maybe versions of themselves or tr uh, versions of their emotional truth that they have. So I suppose, uh, I think Maria did a good job of sort of defining reveling in mediocrity in terms of mediocrity is, to me, is being obvious and starting small, growing, organically and bouncing off each other. Um, but I suppose when we set up an improv scene, 
the aim usually is can we make something which works? Can we tell a story or can we engage the audience for a couple of minutes because something is interesting like, oh, they found a gag about putting on a mime jacket or whatever that thing is. Um, can we do something which is watchable? Um, and I suppose I wonder if... And I think you, you've answered my question, Ben, in terms of do we get the transcendent moments in improv that we get in the finale of a musical on Broadway or the um, halfway through Hamlet's soliloquy on a you know, summer field with surrounded by your friends in a picnic and so on? And I think you answered the question, Ben, which is that you can be very powerful in improv and there are magic moments available. But I still think that despite that it's all thrown away and gone the next day mm. um, and there's sort of a feeling of oh we did all that and then now what's the next thing it's over now and maybe you'll remember something from the show maybe you you won't mm. um, maybe the audience will will remember more than you do uh, as an experienced improviser maybe you, you don't realize maybe I'm not realizing how much I am affecting the audience and how much they are taking away from watching us. This, this inspires me. The last thing you said, should improv be recorded? Over time, I found that the opinion on that has vastly changed. When I first started off, like recording improv was very cutting edge and something you should not do because it destroys the magic of improv. Now, I feel like if an improv show wasn't recorded, that's probably bad. And it might be because... You're not, not only for the marketing purposes, where you could use it later on to like say, hey, Palmerston North or uh, Manila, look at the stuff that we can do. Here it is. Um, and I think that, I think you can capture a lot of the magic of improv on camera, but not usually, unless it's done very well. But even then, there's something missing from it. But I think you can just say at the beginning, hey, there's something missing from this, the magic of it, but we just made this shit up and it's amazing. And by the way, it did really well on Netflix when we've seen it a couple of times, in my opinion. Yeah, Impressorus records every show we ever do um, and they sit on like a Plex server that we all have. I've never once watched them, uh, but I know they're there. Um, I, yeah, I know they're there. Um, I, I like the idea of recording it only because we are really hypercritical and I think it's nice sometimes to go back and to remember magic that you made with someone on stage. And if, as long as I think when we review improv, we review it for like the joy because like it is made up so you can't critique it as if it wasn't made up. And when it's recorded and we watch it, we're like, oh, it's not made up. It's like, nah, dude, if that was a ticket, if that was a scripted show, you should have left. Like, <laughs> it's made up. <laughs> I'm get, I guess I'm going to disagree uh, respectfully. I, I hate recorded live things. Um, well, I don't actually, that's not true. I have a modifier to that, which I think is in recent times when there's been some great live recordings done with good cameras and good angles and capturing, mm. the, capturing the magic that the live performance has. But I think, generally speaking, sticking a camcorder at the back of your theatre is damaging because um, the magic that happens between a performer and an audience in that moment is sacred to me. It's a sacred agreement that we hear on this occasion, 
in this place on this time and that warmth that is felt in that great improv moment or that that night is um you know if you weren't there you weren't there that's why it's special and I think recording that uh makes a product a false product of what it was it makes a false memory because it was only the memory of the camcorder and that angle and that lighting and and, and it wasn't everyone else's memory of it. So I, I don't like I don't like the idea of it. But that said, it's totally about the intention. If you if you're recording your performances for some sort of ongoing record keeping or maybe to review something you want you wanted to look at, I, I, I get behind that. You'd have to convince me pretty strongly, but um, I can maybe get behind it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, first of all, for the really great conversation. It was uh, awesome to to watch, and I love the way you traversed such yeah complex topics really respectfully. With yeah, it was just it was a pleasure to watch. But um, any questions that have come up for people based on what you've heard uh, can be can be more of a comment than a question, if you wish. So I've got sort of a question blending into a comment. Um, uh, my question is whether Dan's, uh, any of Dan's thoughts about mediocrity might not be quite consistent with his thoughts about videos. I wondered if, uh, if the, 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 some of the mediocrity thing was mistaking, uh, um, mistaking improv, possibly even comedy, for, um, for a scripted show. Whether the, 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 the kind of standards standards that you're trying to apply because um, for me um, the thing that you're creating part of the um, part of the attraction of it is that it does not last and it, the fact that it's a thing that you're making in the room with all of the, the people and um, the, the moments that uh, when, when you're you're in a room and everyone is holding their breath and then everyone releases their breath either to laugh or sigh or whatever, um, is actually what it is, what is the point of the thing. Um, and I was reminded uh, by way of comment about um, something Antonio Fava says in his book about Commedia dell'arte, which I always paraphrase hugely, um, but it was kind of about that, um, that, 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 that kind of effect and how... Um, how comedy works effectively like the way Aristotle talks about tragedy, you, you, uniting everyone in a moment and then releasing it all. Um, so he was explaining basically um, what I say is that, that, that actually comedy is the highest art form, but if we let people realise that, then we wouldn't get away with it anymore. If you are creating something together in improv, it, it tends to be funny. Um, and I think the reason it tends to be funny, and I've taught two workshops and I sound like a broken record, is that when we provide, like, details are funny, right? So, like, you can have a very truthful scene, and it's different if you're eating breakfast versus if you're eating two scrambled eggs on whole wheat toast with two Kransky sausages. But the point being is, like, that tells me a lot more about who you are. And I do think that comedy is the creation of honesty and details. And so I think that, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers the question, but I think that... Comedy is an incredibly high art form when it's overlaid with honesty. Yep. Thanks for calling me out on the contradiction, Lyndon. I think you make a really good point. And I'm sorry to have waded into a NZAF discussion of improv and called it mediocre. But my, na <laughs> but my name is Daniel. 
So. Hello. Um, my question is one that kind of links into the question around gender and playing your own gender or the gender you identify as. Accents. Doing accents that are not your own. Thoughts. I suppose I can talk about a personal tactic I have these days, which is Caucasian or European Pakeha accents are within my uh, capabilities. And I just happen to not be able to do the other accents. <laughs> Part of what I love about acting is mimicry. I, I love, I love, I watched a lot of TV as a kid and I would always copy the accents of the shows that I loved, the characters I loved. And that's kind of what got me into theatre sports was that I could be, as Ben was referring to before, be someone else on stage and um, in a very quick, clever way. So I think that'll always be a part of my play, and I'd hate to lose it completely. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of what people are worried about, and I think it comes down to intention. What is the heart behind the thing that you're doing? Are you are you trying to take down these these others that you are not, or are you trying to celebrate and laugh with them? And um, I've always hoped that in my improv, I'm laughing with people, not at them. And that's got to be core to what we do. Yeah, I think if the accent is the joke, don't do it, no matter what it is, I think, generally. If you've got nothing on the side of stage except an accent, you might want to wait before you come on stage. Um, I think I'm going to say the same thing you did, but with more words. Um, I, I feel like... Uh, Accents, for me, are the last layer that you might want to put on as a character. So you start off with uh, your base, your point of view, and then physicality, and the way you move, the way you walk, you treat people. And if you are skilled enough to add an accent, that's helpful. That said, there's other shows where I might, for instance, need to be playing your English son. And we've been endowed with Englishness, and uh, so I might attempt to dive into that a little bit um, in order, because it contextually fits the show. I do get concerned with people with that, just like you were saying there, if people come on with an accent and they think that an accent makes a character, for me, that's just inaccurate. Um, the fact that I have an American accent uh, says something about my character, but a lot against most of what I believe in. Um, sorry, America, if you're listening. Um, the... Uh, the other thing is the Kiwi accent is as hard to imitate as people say. And I do, I was in a situation with uh, Wedemu here and the B team where it was my first New Zealand improv troupe for some reason that was all Kiwis except for me. And so I told them that I felt it was my responsibility to at least try some basic words, the Kiwi accent, so I'm not just the brother and sticking out, you know, like the only brother in the family that doesn't have a Kiwi accent, they have to justify it every time, because we weren't doing wah, wah type of comedy at the time. And they told me not to worry about it, nobody cares. And so that might be a Wellington thing, that might be a New Zealand thing, um, yeah. So I have thoughts, but no strong opinions, other than if your accent is your character, you're wrong. Okay, I would also just say really quickly, like accents are a craft, and I think just like with anything with improv, if you're gonna do it, practice it. Like I think the one thing I, I tend to find quite hard I also love accents, like I love them. Every lockdown I've tried to learn a new accent and I just love trolling, like I, 
Oh, it's amazing. And linguistics is so cool. Um, so yeah, I guess I would also say like, if you're interested in it, follow that interest. Like you should be doing with everything with improv um, and and get better at it so that when you're doing it, it isn't a farce. It, it's, a, it's a skilled trait similar to your yes and your endowment that you can add on to a character. Yeah, do the mahi for it. Agreed, agreed. Um, I think there's an exception to what you're talking about with if you if you've just got an accent, mm. don't come on. Which is that some people are outside in actors yeah. where they want to put on a a thing to feel like they're getting into a character, and I think like putting on a hat if that helps yeah. you create that character. You know, I've done things in Shakespeare's and things where I'm like, I don't feel like I know this character, and it wasn't until I found their voice that I started mm. making sense of the script and how he's he said those things. Uh, so I kind of think there are some special individuals out there who maybe if all they've got is an accent, they might start in the first 10 yeah. seconds that way. Starting point. But build on that and become a character as opposed to just an accent. So um, I yeah. think it can be a thing to choose an accent in terms of this is what, you know, when I want to be this kind of a character, this is where I go, and then other stuff hopefully will come out to support the accent. Wrap up here. Uh, any closing, uh, yeah, if, if, if you'd like to reflect, make a closing, closing statements. <laughs> closing statements. For me, the magic of improv is discovery and learning about ourselves. This last year, I went to the Auckland Improv Festival and somebody came up to me wanting to get notes for their show that they did with their troupe. We went to the, to the side and um, they said to me that they cried for the first 20 minutes after the show uh, in their car and, uh, and said, okay, so I know it was terrible and the worst thing, but just like give me something that I can hold on to. And I said, well, your show was really good. Um, and I think that you have the wrong approach to improv because if you go and have a good show and your approach afterwards is to go cry for 20 minutes in a car, I, I think you're, you're missing out on the joy of improv, which is to, to overall look at what we're doing and say, what people see us, like random audience people that have no experience in this, overall they think of what we're doing, even if it's what we think of as a shit show, it's still going to be amazing in their eyes. So that's the baseline of what we're doing is amazingness. And we really have to remember that. And so I said, I think the only notes that you should be giving your troop and yourself are, what could make it more fun, easier, and more fulfilling the next time? But that's not, not in any way how I give notes, actually. Um, so I should take my own advice, and now that's the way that I give notes from now on. <laughs> so please have joy in your improv, and if not, take a long time off and do it from an entirely different perspective until you find it again. Thank you so much. Uh, this is very, 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 very fun. Um, <laughs> I started. Um, I guess in closing, I would just say that one of the things I love about improv is that you get to be like a nerd and real cool at the same time. <laughs> and I guess like you just get to be like a you get to be like a total dork about improv. Do you know what I mean? Like amongst the people that are in this room, like we all love the fact that we you know, focus on these little bits of scenes and we can dissect them and we get to play these characters and we get to ask these interesting questions. And I guess I would just say, like, keep doing that. That's part of the joy is being amongst people who want to ask these questions. So whether it's gender, whether it's accents, whether it is, um, you know, how you give feedback, be willing to keep learning. 
um, and changing the way. And then I think you kind of can address the, the potential finite issues of improv if you just look at it as a learning exercise. What I love about improv is it's not mediocre. Definitely not mediocre. <laughs> it's the greatest art form of all. Definitely not mediocre. Thank you very much to our live audience. Thank you to Ben Zolno, Maria Colombo, and Daniel Allen. Uh, that was a lovely conversation about improv. Please tune in for the next one. A round of applause for our panel. Thank you. Goodbye. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Douglas, and made possible thanks to New Zealand Improvisation Trust and Creative New Zealand. The New Zealand Improv Festival ran 4th to the 16th of October, 2021, at Tifanga Nui Wellington's Bats Theatre. Learn more about it at improvfest.nz or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.